This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. So coming up on today's show, we're going to talk about perfectionism. If you type perfectionism into a Google search, you're going to get headlines that include the problem with perfectionism, 10 ways to overcome perfectionism, the dangerous downsides of perfectionism. But at the same time, we're striving and encouraged to be high performers, to pursue excellence and be the best versions of ourselves. And for whatever it's worth, I can't remember the last time I heard a man be derided for being a perfectionist, which makes me ask, what is the real deal with perfectionism? A pro, a con? something far more complex and nuanced. But today's guest is going to help us answer those questions. Catherine Morgan Schaffler is Google's former on-site therapist and author of the new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. In the book, Catherine discusses the upsides of perfectionism and shows every one of us how to unlock our gifts and embrace and even enjoy our perfectionism. Catherine earned her degrees and trained at UC Berkeley and Columbia University, postgraduate certification from the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy in New York City. Catherine, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really excited about this. I think it's going to be, I'm hoping it's useful for a lot of people, and I'm pretty confident it's going to be useful for me. Um, so what I'd like to do is start off with, if you can give us a kind of a, a, a framing of what is perfectionism, what is it really? So I think of perfectionism as a natural and innate human impulse. Now, that impulse, which is a power, can be constructive and destructive. Of course, right now we're very over-indexed on the destructive nature of perfectionism, and we gloss over and forget all of the ways in which perfectionism can be used to one's advantage. If you look back in the history of psychology, the first time perfectionism appears in the literature is from Dr. Alfred Adler, who I became obsessed with while researching this book. And he frames perfectionism in a similar way. He called it the eternal melody we all hear. And we all know Adler, even if we don't know we know him, because He's the guy who coined the term inferiority complex. Okay. And so he looked at mental health and all neuroses, as he put it, as an absence of connection, as opposed to the way we look at mental health today, which is through the lens of individual pathology. So that means that when we see dysfunction today, we look at the person and we say, what's wrong with you? How can we fix you? As opposed to taking a more holistic view and sociocultural view and saying, what are you not connecting with? Where do you need more support? And so I really loved seeing actual language that kind of validated what I had always experienced about perfectionism is that you know, perfectionists are people who are still motivated to contribute. They, in my view, the definition that I use is a perfectionist notices the reality in front of them. And they also recognize an ideal that they imagine in their minds, or perhaps many ideals of how something can be improved or better. And a perfectionist feels this very actionable, compulsive drive within them to try and bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. Now, the two questions to explore to determine whether your perfectionism is manifesting in a healthy way or not healthy way is like, how are you striving and why are you striving? Okay. And the how is about, are you striving in a way that feels good for you, that is energizing and is aligned with your values 
Or are you striving in a way that is hurting you, that is running you down? So let me ask the question because it may fill that gap. Um, I'm trained as a designer. Mm -hmm. Grew up, was raised by designers. And in the training that I received, not to mention clearly my own orientation, um, that noticing the reality and imagining the ideal is such a beautiful way of explaining what the process is of refining a piece of work mm-hmm. where we're getting it as close to our version of perfection as possible. I think about engineers. I think about um, surgeons where closing that gap is at the heart of the art and the science and the excellence that we're trying to bring to bear on what we do. But I also know that the process of getting there, particularly when it involves other people, can torture other people. Mm-hmm. That they may not, they're, they, the size of that gap to them may not be the same as it is to you. Right. And that speaks to the component of how are you striving? And are you striving in a way that is making people around you miserable and operating such that the outcome is the only variable to consider? Because it's not great that your kid got into the school that you wanted them to get into. Not great when they spend their entire, you know, first semester dealing with suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. because they weren't ready. And, you know, it didn't matter that they weren't ready or that they were expressing, you know, concerns or whatever they needed to get into the school and they did. And they, you know, it's the same for work context. It's like wonderful that you exceeded, you know, your second quarter goals, not wonderful in the third quarter if half of your team is quitting or looking for somewhere else to work. So these are considerations to make of how are you striving and then why are you striving is the second component, which is, are you doing what you're doing because you think achieving the goal is going to certify your belonging or your worth in some way? Do you think that once you get the promotion or get the beautiful kitchen that you always dreamed of or whatever, that's when you can finally relax or enjoy your life or invite people over or start dating or whatever it is that you want to do. And if you are seeking a goal so that then you can fully live your life, that's an indication that you might be engaging in some maladaptive perfectionistic thinking or behaving. And so it's so it's not just um, how extreme your gap is between reality and ideal, mm-hmm. but it's also um, the degree to which that ideal is ever achievable and mm-hmm. represents like the, like, then all will be well, then I will be at peace, then I could stop striving. Right, exactly. And I call it intellectualizing joy. It's like making a very excellent plan to be super happy later. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, your life and the relationships and every little bit of pleasure that you can extract in the day is getting passed by. Are there, um, is there a difference though for, um, we call them high performers, um, not just people who do well at work and not just people who are making their goal, but people who are really seeking to do and capable for them, their difference between reality and the ideal is a magnitude of order beyond ours, Olympic athletes, um, professional ballet dancers, people for whom the attainment of the extraordinary Mm -hmm. is arguably within reach. Mm -hmm. Does this still plague them or is it overly abundant in them? Yes, it does still plague them. And I talk about this in the book, the closer you get, I call it the sting of silver, the closer you get to achieving the outcome and then you don't achieve the outcome, actually it's it's more painful. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this has been well-researched. It's like if you miss a bus by 15 minutes, it feels very different than if you miss a bus by 10 seconds. The yes. outcome is the same. You got to catch the next bus, but you're not 
processing what you feel and think based on the outcome. You're processing it based on your emotions. It's like, we are not logical creatures. We are psychological, you know, that old adage. Yes. And so, yes, it is the same for high performers as it is for, you know, what we may call everyday people, because perfectionism is a highly individualized construct. And so when I say perfect, like, let's say you want to be, you know, the perfect employee, people can again, intellectualize, well, nobody's perfect. And I hear this all the time. Nobody's perfect. And I know people make mistakes and et cetera, et cetera, but still we all operate with an ideal. So that's interchangeable with perfect. An ideal is sure you make mistakes, but you don't make mistakes around this, you know, and sure you make mistakes, but they're not this visible. And so once you kind of funnel everything down, you get a real sense of, we each do carry ideals about when it's okay to get frustrated, for example, the degree to which it's okay to be frustrated, how long your frustration is supposed to last, the intensity of your frustration. And once you deviate from those parameters that we've made up in our mind, often unconsciously, that's when you begin to lacerate yourself if you're in a negative headspace with punishment and saying you need to get over this or you're you know being too emotional about this whatever it is do, do we compartmentalize our perfectionism is it possible that we're perfectionists in certain areas and not in others yes perfectionism like all identity constructs and in my opinion all of mental health is very fluid and context dependent so you could be an intense perfectionist at work and we'll get into what each of the types are um, and really demand exacting standards and come home to a place that looks like it just got ransacked right. and is like so messy. And you could be a messy perfectionist when it comes to dating, but not at all in your work life. Right. So it can vary. So that leads me to, um, as you've noted and written about, and this is part of what's so interesting, is that there are different types of perfectionists, different patterns to our perfectionism. Can you mm -hmm. help walk us through what they are? And I'll give you the advance notice that I related to all of them in some way. Yeah. Well, I think we all have a little bit of a perfectionist in us. And again, that speaks to the broader definition of this term, which is perfectionism is an innate human impulse. We all get perfectionistic about something. Now, whether you consider yourself a perfectionist or not is about the patterns mm -hmm. and the frequency. So I like to use the phrase more often than not, okay. because this isn't a binary construct this isn't like you are or are not something, but you know, to put a little more elasticity around these identity markers, it's like more often than not, is this your pattern at work? Is this your pattern in relationships? Is this your pattern with your parenting? And so the five types are classic. That's the first type. And I think okay. it's the type that's closest to what we all imagine when we think of the perfectionist. And each type has its pros and cons, advantages and liabilities. So the classic perfectionist is very reliable, easily adds structure to any context that they're in. And they do what they say they're going to do, the way they say they're going to do it, when they say they're going to do it. The cons to this type of perfectionism is that unmanaged and unchecked classic perfectionists can get so focused on like finishing the to-do list that they disengage from actually why they're doing the to-do list. Mm. And interpersonally, this can be a difficult type because people can sometimes take classic perfectionists for granted which makes them feel underappreciated because you know the classic perfectionist is going to get it done. Right. And perhaps the style that classic perfectionists take to getting it done doesn't engender itself to collaboration or you know things that 
work to build connection with other people. So there's a risk of, of things feeling transactional for this type of perfectionist. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132. And I'm talking with Catherine Morgan Schaffler, and she's the author of the new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. So Catherine, when you talk about these classic perfectionists, and I think um, when I've had them on my team, like they do get it done. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also interesting to note that there can be this gap in connection with others. Um, How much of that is about the intense focus on getting through the to-do list and not getting distracted and how much of it is about um, limiting the variables of um, emotional contagion. Right. Well, I think we tend to think of these types and we tend to think of all personality profiles or any mental health labels as like good or bad. And they all have a little bit of everything in the mix. And so to answer your question, it depends on what's happening internally with that person. Like only you know. And that's the thing that I love about working with perfectionists is such nuanced work because a perfectionist can appear to be so high-functioning and doing something in all the ways that they want to do it. But only you know if you're connected to why you're doing that or if you're leaning, as classic perfectionists sometimes do, on completion of tasks or completion of goals as a way to distract yourself from something that you're not ready to encounter within yourself, some level of stress or pain or something that you're avoiding. And this... This goes back in a way to what you were saying at the beginning, that while it's an innate impulse and it's a power, Mm -hmm. um, that it also taps into um, those points of Adler's that you were talking about. And when is it an absence of connection or a pathology? So that um, am I putting the the pieces together correctly in that... um, trying to do one thing very well is not the problem. But when we have a pattern of um, our perfectionism driving how we do things um, in ways that can be unhealthy, unproductive, limit our connectivity to others, it's being driven by something inside of us. And if we can understand it, we can get a grip on it. Yes. When your perfectionism is value-driven and you have chosen those values, they're not your default culturally sanctioned values, which are basically money, speed, and rank often, right? We are, we are a culture that very much values efficiency and values grit, and there's nothing wrong with those values, but they might not be your primary values. Mm-hmm. So when your perfectionism is value-driven and you are doing it in a way which does not violate your integrity or the integrity of others, then expressing your perfectionism can just be this wonderful, energizing experience. You know, being a perfectionist is not the problem. Some of the most joyful people in the world are perfectionists. The problem is how you respond to your perfectionism. Meaning when you don't reach the ideal, because ideals by definition are not reachable, do you punish yourself or do you meet yourself with self-compassion? And that's really the spine of the book. And nobody knows that's not a visible thing really, because all of this stuff is mental. Mm -hmm. It's not like we punish ourselves by writing on a piece of paper. I am bad 100 times. Um, But we say those thoughts in our minds and we deny ourselves access to pleasure and joy or until maybe we we're it. up in the middle of the night thinking about a mistake we made in a conversation five years ago. Ruminating is a very popular form of punishment, particularly for procrastinator perfectionists. <laughs> yeah, we all have our go-to punishment themes. And I think rumination, you know, I have a line in the book that like we mistake when you're, when you're ruminating, you're mistaking um, replay for reflection and worrying for preparation. 
And when, when ruminating is helpful, because it can sometimes be helpful to look back and say, what happened? What could have happened instead? What would I, what do I wish would have happened? What do I need in the future? That's genuine reflection. Mm-hmm. And being prepared is about connecting yourself to the support you need so that you feel more prepared to handle a similar situation in the future, as opposed to just replaying the whole situation with a negative, like, I can't believe I did that. I really did that. I can't believe I did that. But it's like right. And you stay a in a cycle that's totally unproductive. And we all do it. The, the thing that I don't want to happen is for people to be listening to this conversation and be like, okay, the old way of thinking is out and the new way of thinking is in. That's not my goal. My goal is to understand that this is like a five lane highway. That's your brain. And you can switch lanes just because you switch lanes doesn't mean you have to like burn down and crumble the other lane. So in other words, two ways of thinking can exist at the same time. And the goal is not to get one to dominate over the other. The goal is to stay open enough to understand that your perspective is a choice. And is the outcome when we get there or in the journey to sustain that, because it's not a destination is that we're able to pursue things seriously. We're able to try and close our gap between reality and ideal, but in ways that don't hurt us, that don't hurt other people, and that don't have us kind of um, pursuing the false gods, like the false dream of something that's far beyond the the reality of what we're working on, that we haven't imbued it with greater meaning. Right. Yes. Adaptive perfectionists understand that ideals are meant to inspire. They're not meant to be achieved. And so you're working in a way that inspires you at a task that is a lifelong task. And, And after a perfectionist achieves a goal, they always create a bigger goal because they're they're not doing it to achieve goals. They're doing it to chase an ideal. Mm. And so it's really about what you're talking about um, is about, can you take joy in the process? Okay. And, you know, in order to do that, we really have to dismantle what we think we know about perfectionism. We have to think outside the box and throw the box away because we're just inundated with this cultural message of this highly gendered construct that perfectionism is bad. And if you are a perfectionist, particularly a female perfectionist, you are unhealthy and you need to change. It feels like the derision around women perfectionists is also, um, there's an issue of power in that um, tension. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Yes, I think there... I don't think, I know we live in a misogynistic (laughs) culture and for women to be publicly ambitious is very delicate terrain. Mm -hmm. It's a fine line for every woman to walk. And when we think about esteemed female perfectionists, Martha Stewart, for example, might come to mind or Marie Kondo. We don't tell these women to stop being perfectionistic or to quote unquote, find balance. Um, And when we explore why that is, we can see that their ambitions are focused on archetypal homemaker interests, right? So Martha Stewart's company, Martha Stewart Omnipedia is about paint palettes that pop and weddings and how to throw brunch in a pinch. And, you know, Marie Kondo, I love her work. It's about so much more than tidying up, but that's what it's about on on a superficial level of tidying your house. And when you think about the fact that Martha Stewart happened to be a stockbroker on Wall Street before she started Martha Stewart Omnipedia, but that feels like very off-brand to say. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason that feels off-brand to say. Right, like I align her perfectionism with excellence. It doesn't feel like she's pursuing um, uh, an ideal that's beyond the tangible Mm-hmm. Or that it's driven by something unhealthy, even though I think it can prompt people, it can feed the perfectionist monster inside of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that in her case, she's emblematic of an, ex- like she's a, a billionaire. She's this extraordinarily, extraordinarily successful businesswoman. 
who brings excellence to everything she does. Um, but it feels like there's a, a way that that gets transported into our individual lives that can really like light, put gasoline on the fire of unhealthy pursuit of per- perfection. Yeah. And I mean, again, perfectionism is a power. And so it's like, if you think of any power, you know, art can inspire beauty and also be, you know, exploitative or objectifying. Um, Wealth can be philanthropic or, you know, it can incite a lot of greed and and scarcity and, and limiting resources. And, you know, perfectionism is that way. And I think you need to understand what your triggers are in, and, be aware of that. And that's what I really hoped to do with this book is to begin to offer language mm-hmm. so that you can identify when something is coming up for you that is igniting your perfectionism. Because so often we don't realize that we're even engaged in perfectionistic standards. There's so much to talk about here, but we have to take a break. We're going to be back shortly, but don't go away. When we return, I'll continue my conversation with Catherine Morgan Schaffler, author of the new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today I'm talking with Katherine Morgan Schaffler. She's a psychotherapist, writer, speaker, former on-site therapist at Google, and quite importantly, the author of the new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Katherine, welcome back. Thank you. So, Um, In the first half of our discussion, um, you noted that there are these frameworks of understanding our perfectionism, different um, ways that we may inhabit that notion that they present Mm -hmm. in us. Could you walk Mm -hmm. us through, um, and you had mentioned classic perfectionists, the highly reliable person that um, maybe can experience difficulty connecting meaningfully with others. Um, What are the other four? Okay. So the other four are the intense perfectionist. And these are people who want a perfect outcome. And so these are highly efficient people, razor sharp focus on the goal, and they will get it done. But if they're not managing their perfectionism, their high standards can sort of metastasize into impossible standards. And they can be very punitive with people around them and themselves if they're not achieving their goal or if they're not achieving their goal in the way they want it achieved, usually quickly enough. Okay. Then there's the procrastinator perfectionist. And the simplest way to explain this is that they want the conditions to be perfect before they start something. So on the pro side, this type of perfectionist is excellent at preparative measures. They are very thoughtful people who can see everything from a 360 degree angle and they're not impulsive, which is a huge asset that I am jealous of personally. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, on the con side, they can forget about the law of diminishing returns when it comes to their preparative measures and become so focused on preparing that they never actually execute. Okay. And then that turns into a negative script about... I'm just never going to do this. I've been stalling. And it's like a perfectionism paralysis. Yep. The counterpart to the intense perfectionist is the messy perfectionist who, unlike, you know, needing the conditions to be perfect to start, starts everything, is start happy, is, is like naturally enthusiastic, curious about everything has so much energy and it, and it's the very contagious energy to be around. It's really wonderful thing. Superstar idea generators. The problem is if you're not managing this perfectionism and by managing, I mean, understanding where you need support. If you're not managing this perfectionism, well, what happens is that after the intoxicating rush of the new beginning, which you love, and messy perfectionists are so good at pushing through the anxiety of a new beginning effortlessly, you hit the tedium of the middle and you're like, oh, what is this? I don't want to do this. And again, this can happen at work when you're like, I'm going to start this company and this is what it's going to be called. And this is going to be my you know, 
color palette for my Instagram page and all this stuff. And then you have to like file your PLLC and do taxes and do all the boring things. And you're like, oh, this isn't what I thought it would be. Because of course, bringing something into the world can't not remain perfect, right? And the same thing with dating. These are people who might love the first date or the second date and the third date. It's like the first glitch. It's like, I'm out, I'm done. This isn't, this isn't the perfect Ah, kind of situation. And then there's the Parisian perfectionist. And this is a really interesting type of perfectionism that plays out interpersonally. So Parisian perfectionists may be completely fine working in a role in which there's not very much upward mobility. And, you know, that's okay with them because their ideal is about ideal connection. They want to be perfectly liked, perfectly understood. They want to perfectly like others, perfectly understand others maybe perfectly understand themselves. Um, And this, of course, when it's not being managed well, can degenerate into toxic people-pleasing. So in order to get people to connect with you and like you, you know, you're easy breezy at the expense of abandoning yourself. Why is this Parisian? I named it Parisian after the beauty aesthetic of French women, which seems so effortless I know, just elegant, but not fussy. Effortless, easy. Like, I don't care about beauty that much, but there's a whole lot of work going on behind the scenes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And unlike classic perfectionists who have no problem displaying their perfectionism and being like, here's my spreadsheet about restaurants we can go to on our vacation. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Parisian perfectionists feel a sense of embarrassment about their perfectionism. Okay. They don't like to seem like they're trying too hard. Okay. It's very vulnerable for them. Okay. And so, so that's it's not why just that it's unsavory. It's that mm-hmm. there's vulnerability in revealing the pursuit of perfection. Yes. Because if you think about it, you know, classic perfectionists aren't really seeking validation through other people liking them as much mm-hmm. as um, maybe more technical kind of completion, like making something beautiful or focusing on the completion of of something external. And intense perfectionists, for example, don't care at all if people like them, but Parisian perfectionism is about the connection with the other person. So if the other person perceives them to be trying too hard or whatever, it gets very complicated for the Parisian perfectionist. It feels like very exposed. So given that you know, Matt, this perfectionism, it comes up in these different places, um, wanting something to be perfect, um, wanting experiences to unfold perfectly. You know, it takes mm-hmm. different forms. How do we behave or perform perfectly? Um, those things are so impossible that then we have all these other negative emotional feelings and dynamics that come with it. Like you were talking about rumination or endless people pleasing or like an internal turmoil. Mm-hmm. What can we do to free ourselves from this cycle? Where do we start? Well, it's a great question. And I wrote the whole book because in looking at books that are available on perfectionism and how to manage perfectionism, they all essentially take an eradication approach instead of an integration approach. So eradication approaches are like, how do we learn to stop being perfectionists? And that doesn't work with perfectionism because Perfectionist is interesting in that it's an enduring identity marker. Mm-hmm. This is true in the research. I've also found it to be true in my own work. It's like thinking of yourself as a romantic or an activist. So for the same reason that I would never say to a romantic, it's nice that you believe in love, just believe in love 25% less of the time. Right. And that's not going to happen. And nor would I say to an activist, like, it's great that you care, just don't care so much. And yet we continue to say to perfectionists, it's great that you want to do your best. Just just be a little bit less of a perfectionist. Just don't sweat the small stuff. Just lower your expectations. And, and these directives do not work. And so the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control is about integration. It's about saying all parts are welcome. You're going to feel disappointed. And you respond to all parts of yourself with self-compassion not punishment. 
And I devote so much of this work to explaining what self-compassion and punishment actually are, Mm -hmm. because I don't think we know what they are. And why would we? We don't talk about this stuff in our public school curriculum. You know, most people are are like well into their 20s before they hear the word boundary. That stuff is changing, but the change is kind of slow coming. And interestingly, I think, um, well, it's not, it certainly wasn't present when I was growing up in school. We also didn't have social media. And right. with social media now, there's an explosion of discourse using that's become popularized in Mm -hmm. the hands of creators on social media, not necessarily people like yourself or Adler. And so um, we hear a lot of talk, um, TikTok, Instagram, the whole nine yards about things like self-love. How is self-love different than self-compassion? Yes. Well, self-compassion does not require you to declare love for yourself. And I think this is such an unlock for people who are like, I, I hate the expression, you, you know, you can't, I think it goes something, some version of you can't um, be loved by other people until you love yourself. And for the person that's struggling to love themselves, it's like, great, what am I supposed to do with that? You know? And I find that to be not true. I have loved people while they hated themselves. Other people have loved me while I have really struggled to connect with myself. And that love is real. And I think this comes back to a point of connection and understanding that self-compassion is a three-step resiliency building tool. It is not a feeling. No, self-love is an emotion and it's a feeling. It's something that you can't always turn up and down like a volume knob. And I think it's something that comes from treating yourself in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you can just automatically push on or off. But self-compassion is something that in one minute you can begin to generate a more self-compassionate response. And I use the brilliant Dr. Kristen Neff's framework of self-compassion. She's such a powerhouse and she is to self-compassion what Dr. Brene Brown is to vulnerability. She's like the person. And she talks about it in as, as having three parts. And so the parts are common humanity, kindness, and mindfulness. And again, it's like, don't, don't be embarrassed or whatever if you don't know what those words mean, because they don't have some inherent, you know, unified, agreed upon meaning. And and Neff's meaning for these things is common humanity is understanding that even if you feel that your problem is uncommon, this is particularly true when we encounter issues that are taboo in our culture, like sexual abuse, for example, um, sexual harassment before there was a name for that felt very uncommon. Like, oh, what is this feeling that I'm having about the way I'm being treated at work? There must be something wrong with me. You know, common humanity is about understanding that you're not alone. And we say that phrase to people all the time, you're not alone. And I think we all intellectually concede to that, but we don't emotionally register it. And and the way I explain common humanity is, you know, in the arcades, how there used to be those like grabber machines Mm -hmm. to get a toy. It's like, imagine if a grabber machine picked you up and plopped you down in a room full of 50 people talking about their experience with the exact same problem that you're having you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and listen. That in and of itself is curative. That in and of itself helps you remember, oh, this isn't uncommon. I'm not alone. I'm not isolated. There are millions and billions of people in this world and no problem is really that unique. And I'm guessing for the perfectionist, it's also, um, it's not that something's uniquely wrong with me or that my failure, or that I deserve to feel this because of my failure. Right. It's about being able to take that narrative and that refrain that's so popular for all of us of, I'm not doing this right. There's something wrong with me. And be curious about it. Not try to get rid of it. Again, not taking an eradication approach, but being curious about it. And perhaps putting some elasticity 
around the way you're looking at the problem of instead of what's wrong with me, it's what am I not getting that I need right now? Who can I look for, for that? Who's been in this situation before that might be able to guide me to the next right thing? You know, these are questions based on curiosity. And in order to ask yourself these questions, you need to actually assume that nothing's wrong with you. And that's a very difficult leap for a lot of people to make in a culture, which one makes women feel like something's wrong with them all the time, just for existing or taking up space. (laughs) You know, we can never get it right. You're dressed down or you're dressed up or you're not this or you're not that. We're just constantly faced with these prismatic dictums in which, you know, we're painted into corners. And two, we are operating again in a mental health care system that is using a lens of individual pathology to categorize mental health, which is one way, and it's not a bad way, but it's not the only way. And we're operating as if it's the only way. So that's the question we're trained to ask ourselves is I'm experiencing dysfunction. What's wrong with me? And what I'm suggesting people say is I'm experiencing dysfunction. What do I need to be connected to that I'm not getting? There's also a, a nuance in there that you wrote about in a part of the book um, and you used uh, sugar as an example, like um, sugar is bad for my body is mm-hmm. different than I'm bad for eating sugar. Right. So that's one of the tools that I offered to kind of help pull you through all of these things, which sound simple, but you know, as I put on the book, simple is not always easy. I have been trying for the last 40 years to drink eight glasses of water every day. (laughs) It's like some simple stuff. It's really hard. Um, But yes, that's the difference between an opinion and a judgment. Mm -hmm. And the way that you stop judging yourself is to hold on to the opinion part of your thoughts and let go of the judgment. For example, high fructose corn syrup, you know, incites inflammation, isn't good for you. So I am not going to eat high fructose corn syrup anymore versus high fructose corn syrup is not good for you, incites inflammation. So I'm not going to eat it anymore. And I am a better human being than you are, Laura, because you eat high fructose corn syrup and I don't. And that's what a diff- that's what the difference is between an opinion and a judgment. A judgment has this overlay about your worth as a human being and whether you are better or worse than someone else. And we think about being judgmental as having some kind of haughty superiority over others when actually more often than not being judgmental is taking an inferior view to others and saying, all these other people are better than me. They're never late to work or they never seem to be stressed in meetings or, you know, so it's a form of self-flagellation because it's that judgment is turned inward. Yeah. And I mean, you again, all of this stuff can so easily slip under the radar until you have the language to understand what the other option is. Because when people say, just don't be judgmental, it's like, that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> right. it's, it's like, understand that you're going to be judgmental. You're a human being, you will be judgmental about something until the day you die. Um, and try to take your judgment and extract the overlay about your worth as a human being or other people's worth as a human being. This is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Catherine Morgan Schaffler, and she's the author of a new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. So Catherine, you keep sharing these things with me, and I get so interested. <laughs> I got us a little off topic, because one of the things that you were talking about that I thought was just, it's important, is what the components are of self-compassion. And we were talking oh, about yes. humanity, but you also mentioned kindness and mindfulness. Yes. So it's so easy to get off topic when you're obsessed with the topic because you can go in so many directions. This is my messy perfectionism at work. So let me manage it and reel it in. Okay. So (laughs) mindfulness is another word that's been radioactively commodified in our culture. We're like, well, what does that even mean? Mindfulness is again about taking an integrative approach to what you're experiencing. So let's say you experience disappointment, not an unfamiliar feeling for perfectionists. Mindfulness is not about saying I'm disappointed, but it doesn't matter, right? Mindfulness is about acknowledging I'm so disappointed. This is so hard. 
and then asking yourself, what else do I also feel? And turning your head just a little bit and saying, you know what? I'm also relieved because at least now I know that I didn't get the job and I can do A, B, and C next. Or maybe you feel excited about this friend's trip that you had planned that you hadn't even been thinking about because you've been so busy focused on whatever you were trying to get that you didn't get that you're disappointed by. You might feel curious, sensual, tired, playful. And the point is that disappointed isn't all you feel. And mindfulness is about allowing yourself to see the, all the different colors in your emotional landscape so that no one feeling eclipses your sense of who you are or what's possible for the day or it's dictating all of your decision-making. So in that mindfulness, and because like, I love the way you put that, it's a radioactive commodification of the word. Um, I think of when I'm meditating and I'm aware mm -hmm. of the thoughts that are coming across and, but I'm trying to let them be clouds that float away, not get stuck at the stop sign. Um, yeah. But the mindfulness, and it, it sounds like it's observing what those thoughts are and making room to see and harness and spend time with, reconnect to the thoughts that are not just negative about whatever it was that you're perseverating over. Exactly. Mindfulness is about letting go of your resistance to the negative feeling. Okay. So we typically categorize feelings as good or bad. This is an annoying therapist thing to say, but there is no such thing as good or bad feelings. They're just all part of your whole experience of being a human being. And mindfulness to your point, Laura, which is so beautifully made, it's, it is exactly that. It's about not resisting it and not saying, oh no, here comes disappointment. I need to run. I need to distract myself. I can't feel this. This is a bad feeling. It's about letting it come. Maybe it floats away like all the other clouds. Maybe it stays, but it's not the only cloud in the sky. So as we um, endeavor to recognize that we have these patterns in ourselves and acknowledge the ways that they hurt us and can hurt other people, and especially our kids, um, when we're bringing our own perfectionist tendencies to how we work with them. Mm -hmm. um, how? What are the avenues that we can explore for help? Is it, um, you know, there's so much that's rich in the book, it's extraordinary, but what's the role of therapy? Well, therapy is a type of emotional help. And I distinguish between all different kinds of help, because I think sometimes when we talk about getting help and seeking help, we are talking about it in an emotional context. And of course, I'm a therapist. I'm a big advocate for therapy, but therapy is also not the only form of help. And it may not for you in this particular moment in time, be the kind of help you need. So I spell out six different types of help in the book. There are many more, but just to give you some examples, there's tangible help, right? That's like asking neighborhood kids for help walking your pets or like having someone come over and clean your kitchen. You know, when friends ask you like, what can I do? It's like, can you come over and clean my kitchen? <laughs> that is tangible help. <laughs> but we talk about help as if help means that we have to have an hour conversation about our dark night of the soul and get into all of our trauma and all the stuff. And it's like, listen, that can be helpful sometimes, but there's tangible help. There's community help. There's financial help, physical help. You know, Dr. Kristen Neff has these two tools to offer yourself physical support, um, which is so simple. It's just taking your hand on your chest and trying to get under your clothes and actually touching your skin and just feeling your chest for a second, just to bring you back into the moment or taking your hand between your elbow and your shoulder and just going like that. Because it, even though it might feel weird or embarrassing for you to do, your parasympathetic nervous system doesn't know that it's you. So is this because um, when our perfectionism is triggered, if it's um, that it's coming from um, those pathologies or that lack of connection, an emotional, psychological need, that some of these forms of help are ways of ameliorating that need? Yes, I think you know, help comes in every color. 
And that's one of the tools that I point out in the book of like support comes in every color. It's not just therapy. It's not just financial support. It's not just ever going to be any one thing. And even if you find the one thing, first of all, call me, tell me what it is. Secondly, (laughs) nothing that works, works all the time. So your help at some point is going to glitch. And that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It means you're growing and changing. That's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to change. So what worked for you six months ago might not work for you now. And that's okay. That means let me find different kinds of help. And I just wanted to expand people's view of how we think about so many things and support being one of them. You know, sometimes the thing you need most is financial help. And we have a lot of taboo around that and automatically assume that if we're being helped financially, that we're being enabled or, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stickiness to all of this stuff, which is why asking for help can be so difficult. Um, But when you know examples of asking for help and then you have some scripts of how to do that, it can make it easier. Can you give us an example of one? Like, let's say, because I had read, um, I loved this one thing you shared that um, movement changes our nervous system. Yes. So So if like, I want to, and we only have like a few, like just a moment, but if is an example that if I desperately need to exercise in order to make sure that I'm managing my own perfectionist tendencies, but I have to get a babysitter. Right. Ask for help. Right. You can ask for help. You can also just stretch, like stretching and walking. These are incredibly efficacious mental health interventions. You know, we can go back to basics here, deep breathing, walking, sleeping, one of the most productive activities you can engage in. These are wonderful mental health interventions. And we spend such an astounding amount of money and energy trying to find all the right stuff when we're neglecting these primary drivers for our our mental wellness. I hate to do this. There's so much to talk about. We're running out of time. Catherine, where can people find the book and more about you and your work? The book is The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. You can hear about the third component of Neff's self-compassion in the book. And I am on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. And my website is also my name, CatherineMorganShaffler.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you everyone for listening. Thanks to my team. I'm Laura Zarrow. And you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week. And don't forget, breathe, rest, and move. And we'll shine. Yes, we'll shine. We will shine. We will shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.